As we begin our prayer, let me read from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. Father, we do call upon you because you are our, our God, our Savior, the one who gives us hope and the one who gives us peace. And Father, as we live in this world of increasing chaos, your peace is so much more needed in our hearts and minds as we deal with the issues of our own lives, of our families, and of our church. And Lord, even of the world as the message is preached, even this day. Father, we ask that you will bless us here this hour by speaking to us and teaching us the truth and helping us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but doers, that it will truly shape our lives and our attitudes and that you will keep us faithful to the task and to the path you've set before us. Our Father, your word is being taught uh, throughout our complex today. We pray your blessing upon it and that you will strengthen everyone who is in the place of ministry this morning and everyone who is in the place of receiving the word as it is spoken today, that you will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just thinking this morning, if you were listening to uh, Lutzer from Moody Bible Church this morning, he was talking about having been on the radio for a couple hours this past week with a bishop who, who doesn't believe that you know, Jesus was never raised from the dead and he wasn't virgin born either because science has proven that can't happen. And the bishop was saying that, that the idea of God sending his son to die is, is, is barbaric because even we know today that if you did that to your child, you'd be held for child abuse. <laughs> you know, you, you think of the twisting of the truth. You know, it's one thing to preach to absolute pagans, but it's another thing to have people who take the truth and screw it all up and, and make it say something that it doesn't say. You know, it... it it helps us to know that, that Satan knows no limits and he knows no bounds. And so that's why it's so important that we know the Word of God so that uh, we, we see falsehood when it comes along. We, we quickly see it. And of course, that's one, what's wonderful about many of Paul's writings because he was right off dealing with, with heresy. You know, the, the heresy of the, Ju of the Judaizers and, and then also the heresy of the Nicolaitans you know, what we would basically know as Gnosticism. Uh, these kinds of things were uh, very, very uh, important in the, right off the bat. And of course, it just multiplied. Till today, it's, it's just utterly amazing. Today, we're in the 15th chapter of Joshua. W one of the things that Joshua had to face was the reality of the fact that there were lands that were unconquered. And we talked briefly about the fact that the Philistine plain and the land immediately south of it in the northern Sinai, this was land that was unconquered, as well as the land up to the north, Phoenicia and Lebanon. And as we look at the passage today, or the passages today, and further, we'll discover that it wasn't just the land to the north and the land to the south, but land right even in the middle of Canaan that was not fully occupied. Caleb, we emphasized, I emphasized last week, the role of Caleb and the fact that the phrase that Caleb gave, that I followed the Lord my God fully, was repeated many times in more than one passage relative to this man. 
that helps us to understand that there are those that walk with God uh, seemingly unfaultingly. Obviously, we know that everybody has his or her faults, and, and Joshua was a man who, and Caleb was a person who, who had his faults and, and uh, sinned, just as we all sin. But, but he had a heart for the Lord and, and, a, and a plan to follow God's leading uh, throughout his life. And so he's held up for us as an example. We have to realize that all of those people, men and women, who are held up for us as examples in scriptures, except for Christ himself, had their warts, <laughs> so to speak, have their feet of clay. But they still are there for an inspiration for us to press on to a higher target uh, than we might in our own flesh. And so Caleb is a powerful example to us, and we'll be talking a little bit more about Caleb today as we look at the 15th chapter. I mentioned to you last time that Caleb, when, when he requested Hebron, he was requesting the land that he had actually surveyed as a spy. That seems to be the implication. And by requesting it, he was requesting the place where there is the tomb where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives are buried. And what is interesting is that tomb is still identifiable today. At least that is the belief of most because we know the tomb has been clearly marked since the days of Jesus because the, uh, the structure, the building that stands there is of Herodian construction. It was built by Herod the Great, who was, you remember, uh, the king of Judea when Christ was born. And the, the site has a strong tradition of being the genuine site of the cave, the double cave of Machpelah. And so by requesting that, he's really requesting his ancestry. He's requesting control of the area that was the heart of the original occupation of the land by Abraham. In the 15th chapter of Joshua, we find a chapter that is fully committed to one topic. And, and that topic is the description of the land that was allotted to the tribe of Judah. And you'll notice it's a very long chapter. It's 63 verses long. And it gives us detail concerning Judah's occupation. Now, what is interesting to me about this is, first of all, Judah is not the eldest son, right, of Jacob. Jacob's eldest son was Reuben, and, and then was Simeon, and then was Levi, and then was Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob's lesser-loved wife, Leah. And then on top of that, as you look through this, this chapter, actually the next two chapters after this, you discover that there's a, a lengthy passage given to the allotment of land to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were not sons of Jacob. They were sons of Joseph. And so here you have a, the longest descriptions of any allotment given to the land of the fourth tribe, and to the land given to the sons, the grandsons of Jacob. And what we discover here is that these will emerge as the dominant tribes. Of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the dominant tribes will be Judah and ultimately Ephraim. These will be the two dominant tribes. And neither of them, it's not like number one son and number two son, you know, which helps us to understand, I think, in part, that God works according to a plan that is different from ours. And he's not locked into our social traditions. And God works in a way that sometimes, well, I think all the time, truly amazes us. 
Our natural expectation would be that if Messiah was to be born, Messiah should be born to the eldest son of Jacob. But he was not. He was born to the fourth son of Jacob. We, we begin to see the importance of these tribes as early as the time of the spies. Because there was a spy sent from each of the twelve tribes, excepting the tribe of Levi. And when the spies came back and reported at Kadesh Barnea to Moses, ten of the spies said, there is no way we can conquer this land. But two men stood up and said, yes, we can, because God will be with us. And they were Joshua of Ephraim and Caleb of Judah. And then we go on to see how their role continues to rise in, in the nation of Israel. Because when Moses dies, Moses' position of leadership does not go to his son, does not go to another Levite, but goes to Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim. And then when it comes to the conquest of the heartland in terms of the ancestry of, of Israel in, Ca in Canaan, and when it comes to the conquest of the most difficult to capture city in the whole land, it goes to Caleb of Judah. And what we are going to find as time passes, and if the Lord tarries and if we continue on, uh, we may get to that place where we'll see that eventually the nation will be united under David, but under, when, when Solomon dies, the nation of Israel is divided into two separate kingdoms. And one of those kingdoms becomes known as Judah, and the other kingdom becomes known as Ephraim. And it incorporates all the tribes. And yet, Ephraim and Judah. And that's how God constantly refers to them. Especially when you read the prophecies. God says, Ephraim did this, and Ephraim did that, and Judah did this, and Judah did that. And he's not talking about an individual. He's not talking about a single tribe. He's talking about all 12 tribes. He's incorporating them within those two terms. Ephraim and Judah. So here in this portion of Joshua, we see the importance of these two tribes in that the whole 15th chapter is committed to the land distribution to one single tribe, the tribe of Judah. And as you look further on later in Joshua, you discover for some tribes, there's like two or three verses given to their land allotment. And yet to Judah, there's 63 verses <laughs> given. Doesn't seem like a balance here. And then as we move on, we discover that although shorter, there are two chapters, 16 and 17, given over to the allotment to Ephraim and Manasseh. So this just tends to heighten to us an understanding that God is making his choices here. And these are the tribes which are emerging. The first 12 chapter, uh, verses, the tw first 12 verses here, I, I'm not going to read to you the 15th chapter because it's just one town, one place, one spot after another listed. It's just a long list of names that generally don't mean anything to us uh, for the most part. Particularly when you get over starting about uh, verse 22 where it says, And Kina and Demona and Ada and Kadesh and Hatzor and Ithnan. And, you know, I, if you were having devotions in the morning and your devotions were, you know, verses 22 to 32 of Joshua, you probably didn't get a lot of inspiration from that. But it's there because it's real. That's what I like about the Word of God. It isn't just a bunch of pious statements. It's truth in the midst of true history. It's the truth of God working in the hearts of men and women in the midst of reality, of real places, real people, real events. 
And those names may not particularly mean anything to us, but they meant a great deal to the Israelites of that time and even subsequent time because they lived in these places. One of the things, let me just give a little footnote here that you, you need to be aware of, and I trust you are already, is that as you read, if you do read through the, a list like this, another list, you keep coming across similar names. In fact, identical names. And, and it's particularly if you get a particular name in mind, and you think, okay, I've got this town in mind. Here it is. It's right here on the map. And then you're reading through, and uh, suddenly the name pops up again, and it's in a different part of the country. Now, how did that happen? You know, how can we screw the border around to get it down to this town? You know, down? Well, it isn't that. It's that because the, uh, the, the many towns had the same name, just like in the United States. You know, how, how many different towns in the United States have the same name? You know, some, there are, I haven't looked this up, but I've read somewhere that uh, there are some names that are repeated almost in every single state in the Union. You know, same town name. So it's the same thing here. So if you see De Beer here and De Beer there and De Beer somewhere else, it isn't the same De Beer. It's a different one in a different location. This is where some people who get really tight about this whole thing and try to figure, well, you know, if it says De Beer, it's the only De Beer. <coughs> no, and, and if it says uh, Ekron, well, there really was only one Ekron, but you, you look at some of these other names, they were repeated like Goshen. And, and so we have to hang loose on this and understand, you know, the scripture isn't wrong because it says this here and it can't be that there because it's down here instead of there. Some people will take that and say, aha, prove the scripture is wrong because it says it's here when we know it's down there. No. These first 12 verses in the 15th chapter describe the borders of the land allotted to the tribe of Judah. Now, the eastern and western borders were pretty simple because the western border was the Mediterranean Sea and that's pretty identifiable. You know, not too much question about that. And the eastern border was the, the Dead Sea. Again, pretty specific. No question about that. What was more complicated were the northern borders and the southern borders. So if you look at this particular map which I gave you, you discover the northern border of Judah is up here and the southern border is down here. Well, you will discover that if you look at one atlas and then another atlas and then another atlas, Borders aren't exactly identical in each atlas. And the reason is that we're kind, these borders are kind of guesstimated. And, and, and the reason for that is that many of the names given on here are uncertain today. That they don't know where that name was located. Especially when it says the rock of something, you know, or, or the grove of something. Because, you know, the groves are gone and, and who knows which rock was that rock. They knew, but we don't. And actually, many, many, many of the towns are absolutely unknown today because this land has been a perpetually inhabited land ever since this time to this very day. And what many do not realize is the fact that when the Israelites, the Jews, were chased out of Judea <coughs> and, and out of Canaan, out of Palestine, by the Romans in the second century, the land became more and more occupied by non-Jewish people and, of course, eventually they became known as Palestinians. And particularly after these people became fully converted to the Islamic faith, they have basically not taken care of the land. And the land has greatly run down. When you go over there and you look at the land today and, and, and you look at the land that is still in, I, I'm trying not, I don't mean in any way to be ethnophobic here. 
But the land that is under the control of the Arabs has not been well kept. Part of that was the responsibility of the Turks because all of that area was under part of the Turkish Empire from basically the 16th century to the beginning of the 20th century to, to the end of World War I. And the Turks practiced a benign neglect for the most part. And as a result, the land was mined for all that it had and very little was put back into it to, to make it better. And so if you go over there, you see a devastated land. But the Israel, Israelis, of course, are trying to rebuild it wherever they have control and, and to put it back into some semblance of good order and profitability. So in the process, numerous towns and villages were totally lost. and Nobody has a clue where they are. So these borders, as I say, as you see them in any particular map, are approximate on the north and on the south. Now one of the things that's important to note, and I have over here the name Philistia. The Philistines were known historically as the Sea People because they invaded the area from the sea. They attacked Egypt, rebounded, ended up on the southern coast of Palestine. And these people were, or this region was never effectively occupied by Judah during this time. Even though, in spite of that, if you look at this map, you'll discover that the land allotted to Judah within Canaan was by far the largest single piece of land. In fact, west of the Jordan River, Judah occupied approximately 40% of the land which left only 60% for the other eight and a half tribes that were on that side of the, of the Jordan River. Because of that, when we get to talking about the tribe of Simeon, you'll discover, you, you see Simeon written down here. The scripture tells us that Simeon was given cities and towns within the tribal framework of Judah because Judah had so much land and Simeon itself, its borders were never described. So it was like Judah was given land within, uh, I'm sorry, Simeon within Judah without any specific borders, which means, of course, that Judah and Simeon pretty much intermixed, and Simeon was not lost within Judah, but to some extent absorbed within Judah. That's one of the reasons why those who talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel are, are speaking of something that is really a more legend than anything else, because within Judah itself, including Benjamin, were three tribes. So if anything, you could only say the nine lost tribes. Uh, plus the fact they weren't lost anyway because uh, as you read through the passages describing the, the, the southern kingdom during the times of the great kings, you'll find that there were thousands of people of the other tribes who had migrated down into Judah. So in Judah were living representatives of every single one of the tribes of Israel. So there is no such thing as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, let's read at the 15th verse of chapter 15. 13th verse, I'm sorry. Joshua 15, 13. Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirith Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Iman, Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the inhabitants of Debir, now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him, give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, the brother of Caleb, 
captured it. So he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. And it came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him, that is Othniel, to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, as you read a passage like this, you need to understand that the way it was written in Hebrew uh, indicates the fact that we're, we're, it's almost shorthand. <laughs> now, things are specified in here without details given and with some intervening thoughts left out because to the people who read it, they didn't need those thoughts. And, and let me uh, tell you what I mean here. This is, of course, the description of Caleb's specific conquest given in some detail here. It was in God's strength that this 85-year-old man was able to lead an army up and capture the fortified mountaintop city of Hebron. It's not actually a mountaintop city, but it's high in the Judean hills at about 3,000 feet in elevation. And, And he was able to drive out the Anakim, and they're named here. Now, some commentators will say it's very probable that these were not three individuals, Sheshai, Iman, and Talmai, but that these were clans descended from those individuals. So it wasn't just three giants, but whole clans of giants who lived in Hebron. Who knows how many individuals we're talking about here. But, you know, whatever the case may be, it was something that had scared the other spies to death 45 years before and said, so that they said you couldn't conquer the land. But Caleb moves against them, drives them out. In whose strength? In God's strength. There's no doubt about that. Well, then we read on that uh, Caleb wants to encourage his men. I-, I think what Caleb is doing here is saying, I don't want to hog all the glory here. So... Um, I'm going to offer my daughter in marriage to the one who will take the next fortified city. Debir was the next city down the road from Hebron. It was in that whole region that Caleb was claiming there. Debir is a little lower elevation on the road as it drops down towards towards the Negev. And so he offers his daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who successfully captures Debir, which was a fortified city also. Now, what is interesting is the passage here tells us that Debir was formerly known as Kiriath Sefer. Nobody really knows why. Because Kiriath means city, Sefer means writing or book. So we're talking about the city of the book. And I've never come across a commentator who knows why that's true. I mean, why is it called the, the city of the book? There, there's no scripture that in any way imp- impinges upon this to give any further clarification. But apparently it was a city where some piece of writing was important there historically. It, it becomes known later as Debir. Well, the one who takes the challenge of capturing the city and thus getting the hand of Aksa is Othniel, who is Caleb's nephew. And he carries out the task. He captures the city and he wins the hand of Aksa. Now, of course, to us today, we say, man, you know, you're marrying your first cousin here. But, you know, that's been historically practiced for eons. Marrying first cousins has never been considered throughout history as as a bad thing. In fact, it's often been considered to be a good thing. If you read through, for example, the the lists of the kings and queens of Europe, talk about first cousins. (laughs) 
I mean, first cousins that are close not only because of one set of connections, but multiple sets of connections. And of course, eventually it can lead to trouble, trouble, especially if you come down to the 19th century in Queen Victoria and, and that whole issue there. But th this was not considered to be anything uh, negative. In fact, it was considered to be positive. What is interesting about this story is you'll find this story almost verbatim in the very first chapter of, ju of Judges, repeated again. This gives background, of course, to understanding what's going to take place with this man, Othniel. Because Othniel proves to be a great military leader. It's not just a shot in the dark kind of thing. You know, Othniel goes and accidentally captures Debir and gets to inherit his cousin as a wife. But what we'll discover is that this man, not only is a great military leader, he will be given the right to judge Israel. Let's look at that third chapter of Judges for a minute. Judges 3, verse 8. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Kenaz was Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into the king of Mesopotamia into his hands, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So Othniel will sort of be like a later day Caleb in many ways, in serving as a judge over Israel. And God uses him to give victory over a, a major Mesopotamian king. Mesopotamia was very unlike Canaan. Mesopotamia was a land that was concentrated and numerous cities were usually linked together in major kingdoms. Uh, the ancient kingdoms that existed there were the kingdoms of the Sumerians. And then subsequently there were numerous other kingdoms that were established and of course the great Babylonian kingdom would be established there and, and also the great Assyrian kingdom would be established there. So we're talking about military power here of a higher order than was known in Canaan. Uh, people who had a long history of warfare and chariots were the primary weapons that they, were that they used, professional armies. And so to have victory for, for Othniel, this, this kind of uh, backwoods guy, you know, to lead Israel out uh, from their farms, you know, grab your bows, boy, kind of like Minutemen, you know, let's get out there, the British are coming, or in this case, the, the Mesopotamians are coming, and go out to defeat Cushan Rishathaim. This was a major thing, and what it does is demonstrates that God was in it because in the flesh there was no way Israel could have defeated this Mesopotamian power. That was the same true when you go all the way back to Abraham. Remember, it was the same deal. Abraham had to deal with Chedorlaomer, who led not just a single group, but a, a coalition of five nations that were in attacking uh, Canaan. And Abraham, with his little group of you know, less than a thousand, the, the number given is something in the neighborhood of 400 to 500. He goes out there and, and, and drives them all off. You know, that's in the power of the Lord. Because we're probably talking about armies that numbered in the tens of thousands of troops. So although it doesn't always specify, what you can see as you read through the scripture is that, that God is at work here, doing something for the sake of his kingdom. What we discover about Aksa is that she was a very wise woman. She goes to her husband, Othniel, and he's won her, but I mean, his bride price that he paid for her was the capture of Debir. 
He captured Debir, and so Caleb gave her to him as his wife. But Aksa was looking ahead, and she wanted a family homestead. And so she went to her husband and said, ask my father for a field. In other words, a homestead, a place for us to settle down. And apparently he did that. And then she thought, hmm, there's no water in that land. <laughs> so she gets on her donkey and goes to her father and says, Dad, you know, you just gave me over as a bride. Fathers are supposed to give their brides, their, their daughters a gift when they get married. We want some water for her land. And so Caleb gives her the upper and the lower springs. Now to the people of, Israel, uh, of, of Joshua's day, and even subsequently to that, they know exactly what this passage is referring to, but you and I don't. The upper and the lower springs. There are a lot of springs in that part of the world. The, the closest that we could come to it is the fact that archaeologists who have dug at the tell which they believe was Debir have discovered that nearby, about two miles away, are two wells, one at about the level of the city, another one higher up in the hill. And they assume possibly these were the upper and the lower springs that Caleb gave to his daughter. Whatever was, I mean, it would be illogical that that would be true. But whatever the case is, we have God working through Caleb to gift his daughter uh, with the water necessary for them to have a successful uh, homestead. From the 21st verse of this 15th chapter on, we have a list of over 100 cities. Now again, we have to use the word city very loosely here. In, in our perception, they would be towns or villages. But in, in those days, if they had a wall, they were usually called the city. Not all of these had walls, but most of them did. These were the cities that Judah was to inherit and was supposed to control. Some of the cities, however, the evidence is that Judah never did control them. For example, verses 45 to 47. One of the regions that was to be given to Judah was Ekron with its towns and its villages, from Ekron even to the sea, and all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod its towns and villages, Gaza its towns and its villages, as far as the brook of Egypt and the great sea, even its coastline. So what we're, we're talking about here, this is the brook of Egypt down here. You see the dotted line becomes solid. That's because that's where the brook of Egypt is. The brook of Egypt was a se semi-permanent stream, an intermittent stream, that flowed uh, through the northern Sinai. It was called the brook of Egypt. And, and it goes right out to the sea here. Okay, that's the brook of Egypt. This is, of course, the Great Sea. So we're talking about this strip right down through here. And in there were several towns. Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza are the three named. Well, these were all Philistine cities. Cities belonging to the Philistines. And as far as we can tell, if Judah ever occupied these, those cities, it was but momentarily. Because the Philistines will prove to be a pain in the neck to Israel all the way until the days of David. The Philistine cities will not actually be conquered by Israel until David conquers them. And, you know, we go into the story of the judges and, you know, you have the whole deal with Samson. And, and what's Samson's deal? He goes out killing Philistines. And, and these, these people lived over here. And for a period of time, the Philistines dominated Israel. Because the Philistines were iron-working people, and Israel at that point was still bronze. 
And so the scripture tells us that whenever Israel needed a sharpened uh, tool, they had to go over to the Philistines and have them sharpen their metal tools because they didn't have the implements necessary to sharpen iron tools, which they had gotten from the Philistines. So this was supposed to be part of the Judean inheritance, but they didn't really inherit it. They didn't really occupy it. We also find some other interesting statement here. It's probably not interesting unless you've actually studied this in some detail. But when it says in, in verse 21, it talks about, now the city is at the extremity of the tribe of the sons of Judah towards the border of Edom in the south. And then, and then it begins to list them. And when you come to verse 32, it says, at the end of the verse, in all 29 cities were their villages. Count them, though. If you go back to the 21st verse and start out with Kabzeel and count all those towns, you will come up with 36. So liberals will come along and say, aha, see, they can't even count. There are 36 here and it says there are 29. But one of the problems that liberal modernists have is they don't really look at the whole scripture. They come at the scripture with the predisposed belief that the scripture's wrong. It's just, you know, just something made up by people and it's just like if you read that article in the paper about uh, three or four weeks ago written by the uh, first Methodist pastor here who, who said that you can't really trust the book of John because it was written a lot later and you know, was sort of an invention of, of later church people. You know, if you approach it that way, you know, what, what does the scripture mean to you? But if you approach it as the inspired word of the Almighty God, who has preserved it down through time by divine you know, superintendency, we believe that everything is accurate. And if there's something that doesn't seem to be right, it's because there's something we don't understand, not because the scripture is wrong. Now, in this case, it's not because we don't understand it. Because if you go to the 19th chapter, you will be told that Simeon was given seven villages of these 36. Simeon was given seven of those villages. Seven from 36 is 29. So what this is saying is these are the 29 villages that belong to Judah. The other seven of the 36 were given to Simeon. There's no problem here. We discover that Israel or Judah was given villages in the uh, south. That means Negev. They were given villages in the lowland. This is the Shephelah and the Philistine plain. They were given villages in the hill country. This is the Judean hill country. And then they were given villages over towards the uh, Dead Sea. That whole strip of land along there is, is known in the scripture as Jeshimon, which is the Judean wilderness. And if you've ever been there, you wonder how in the world did David ever herd sheep here? Because it's rocky, it's barren, it, it looks like Mojave Desert through there. But there were villages. Only six of them, though. You're not so densely populated here where, where it's very, very dry. So Judah had a wide range. They had south country, which is semi-arid. They had the, the coastal plain. They had the hill country before you get to the highlands there, the Shephelah region with its wide valleys. Then you have the hill country. And then you have this desert area that slopes on down towards the Dead Sea. So, you know, they had a little bit of everything that was part of the gift that God gave to the tribe of Judah. But the last verse of chapter 15 brings us up short because it says, Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. 
So the Jebusites live with the sons of Israel at Jerusalem until this day. What? <laughs> Where's Caleb? He can take a city with its giants. Why can't the Judeans capture Jerusalem? Donald Campbell, in his commentary on Joshua, says this. Was it that the men of Judah could not or that they would not? Was the failure because of the lack of strength or lack of faith? The account of Judah's inheritance ends on an ominous and foreboding note. And here you got this list. All this is given to Judah, and then at the very end it says, but the Jebusites stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become the very center of the Israelite nation one day. Jerusalem will one day be captured by David. That's how long the Jebusites stuck around. I mean, they stuck around from Joshua's day clear to David's day. I mean, we're talking about three, four hundred years the Jebusites stayed there before they were driven out. One of the things, one of the primary themes that I think we find in Scripture is persistence, perseverance. It's kind of not like, you know, we go out and we get saved. Whoopee, I'm saved. And it's all okay. But from Genesis through Revelation, and we'll look at some passage in Revelation next week, it, we're told that they who persevere to the end will be saved. They who pers persist to the end. They who are faithful to the call of God. They who are faithful to obey the words of Jesus. These are the ones who pass into eternal life. So I think as you look at the nation of uh, Israel here, you find a lot of giving up here. Oh, well, it's too hard. You know, like a bunch of little kids. It's too hard. I can't do it. And God says, all right, if that's where you're going to be, I'll just leave them right there. I promise to drive them out, but if you aren't going to do your part, there they're going to be, and they're going to be a giant pain in your neck as long as you exist. So it kind of goes back to what I, I mentioned once before several weeks ago is that God allows us to make mistakes. God allows us to be disobedient, but he also allows us to live with that. He doesn't make it all right just because we repent. In terms, I mean, spiritually, yes, we're all right with God, but we still live with the fruit of our disobedience. And maybe throughout our lives. And maybe for Israel throughout its history. John, why did Jerusalem get uh, picked out of all these cities? Is it a geographical reason because it sits in the center of Israel today? Or was it predestined by God to be, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's highlighted because you go all the way back to the 14th chapter of Genesis and you discover that Abraham went to, to the city of Jerusalem called Salem and that's where he met Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, and you know, most consider that to be the actual city, uh, came out and met with Abraham there. And, and uh, as the, we believe, the incarnation, the pre-incarnate uh, theophany, Christophany, that Abraham gave him his gift there. And, and so the city seems to have had a historical importance that goes all the way back prior, even to the time of Abraham. And of course, even though when Joshua wrote this, he couldn't have known that it would become the city of David, uh, certainly, God gave him certain prophetic insight to know that it would be more important than the other cities. Hebron actually would be the more important city at the time we're talking about. And it would actually be David's first capital. David, for, David would first rule in Hebron. But then he would capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites. 
and then it would become the capital. 